children's sermon. There it is. All right, children, come on up here. If you're new here, if this is your first time here visiting with us, we have a children's sermon now. So if you're a child, come on up here and have a seat in the front. We have a special message for you. All right, looking good. You okay? All right. All right, is that everybody who wants to come up? Oh, here comes Abel. Come on, buddy. There's Ava. I'm so glad you guys are here today worshiping with us. Are you excited to be here? I've got a real important question to ask you. Ameline's the only one that's excited to be here? Are you guys excited to be here? Yes. All right. You're almost as bad as your parents. All right. I have a question. If you were going to go into an epic battle and you could only have one th- carry one thing with you into that battle, what would it be? What would you, what would you carry? A Bible? Okay. Would you use it like a shield? Swing it like a sword? No? Okay. You gave the spiritual answer, and I appreciate that. What else what would you bring, Ari? A long sword. A horse? What would you bring? A pony? It would be so cute. What would you bring? A Bible because God gives us the armor of the Bible. That's true. Yeah, you'd bring your Bible. That's great. That would be great. What would you bring? A bird so you could fly away when they're attacking me. A bird so you could fly away. That's brilliant. Okay. So some people might bring a sword. Like Ari, some people might bring a big shield or a, a helmet or armor to protect them during the battle. But let me tell you something. Did you know, what did you want to say? Um, a, gun. a gun? Okay, yeah, that, those are good in battles, in epic battles. Okay, I'm going to move on, and you guys can share more with me after church. Now, <laughs> listen, does, does, does our Father God, does He want us to tell people about Jesus? Yes, we know that's true. I talk about that all the time, right? The Bible tells us, tells, teaches us that we're supposed to tell people about Jesus. It, how many people here, how many of you guys think Jesus is pretty awesome, right? And how many of you think Jesus provides salvation for us and a home in heaven? That's true. All that's true. Now, I want to teach you something really cool and very, very important. Did you know that when we tell people about Jesus that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. Did you know that? We're engaged in a spiritual battle. You can't see it. The Bible says that we're engaged in a spiritual battle with unseen forces of evil. But we can't see them, but they're there. When we tell someone about Jesus, we're engaged in a battle, an epic battle. Did you know that? Now, the Bible also says in the book of Ephesians... Can you guys say Ephesians? Ephesians. Chapter 6. Say 6. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 about what we're supposed to take in this battle, this epic spiritual battle. Talks about all these things we're supposed to carry in with us. And one of them, which you had right and you had right, is our Bible. It says we're supposed to take our Bible, which is a sword. Did you know that? That in a spiritual battle, you know what our sword is? 
the Bible. That's right. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which is the Bible. And so when we go out sharing the gospel, we need to be ready by telling people what the Word says about Jesus. And you know what? Sometimes we're going to go and people are going to be like, I love Jesus too. Tell me how I can follow him. And sometimes people are going to say, I don't want to follow Jesus. So sometimes when you tell them, they're going to be excited and sometimes they're not going to be excited. But you know what? We have victory in the battle just by sharing the news about Jesus. All right? You guys got it? What are you going to take into the battle with you? The Word of God. The Bible. Now listen. The word of the day today is battle. Okay? Can you guys say battle? Battle. Battle. Very good. Thank you for coming up here. You can go sit with your, your family, friends, parents, whoever. All right, church, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's word with me today. Open it up to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. When we introduce the Bible, the Word of God, into a conversation with the intention of telling someone about Jesus Christ, that tends to shake things up, doesn't it? And that's what we're going to talk about today. The first thing I want to tell you is the Bible is our weapon and our source of truth. The Bible is our weapon and our source of truth. Look at Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. After they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. So Paul and Timothy and Silas all leave the town of Philippi, where they led Lydia and her household to faith. Shortly after that, they were arrested, put in jail, the, whereby they uh, had miraculous intervention of God. Uh, the jailhouse shook from a, an earthquake uh, caused by the Lord. Uh, the, jail, the Philippian jailer saw that. He was amazed at this movement of God and came to them and asked how he could follow Jesus. They led him and his household to the Lord, and then they were released. They left that place and came to a town called Thessalonica. That town was about 200,000 people. It was a very, very um, important and highly or greatly populated uh, area in a place called Macedonia. If you remember from the book of Acts, Paul had a vision. There was a man in Macedonia calling, begging them to come to Macedonia to save them. And so that's where Paul went following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Later, Paul would write two letters to the Thessalonian people. And you'll find those letters, those books, in your New Testament. As usual, beginning in verse 2, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So once they arrive in Thessalonica... Paul and Silas, along with Timothy, do what they always do. 
It was their intention to take the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And if you read through the book of Acts, you'll notice this is a pattern of Paul's. They go into the town. If there's a synagogue there, they will go to the synagogue and they will share the gospel with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks and people, the Gentiles, who are in that synagogue. So that's what Paul does. He goes to the synagogue over three Sabbaths or three Saturdays. He says he reasons with them from the Scriptures explaining to them that it was necessary for the Messiah who's written about in the Old Testament to come and to die and to rise from the dead. Now, when Paul goes to Thessalonica and goes to the synagogue, it says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures in verse 2. What does that mean? It doesn't tell us. Luke doesn't report what Paul said from the scriptures. But if, if you look back into earlier chapters in the book of Acts, Paul has sort of a pattern. He has some scriptures in the Old Testament that he likes to use to demonstrate to the Jews of what God's prophets said the Messiah would be like or what he would do or what would happen to him. These are called messianic prophecies. And so Paul shares with them. I think if we base what Paul said in Thessalonica on what he said in other cities, he's probably using passages like Psalm 2-7 or Isaiah 55-3, Psalm 16-10 or Habakkuk 1-5. All of these Old Testament passages speak about a Messiah who would one day come, who would suffer, who would die, and who would rise from the dead. So Paul begins his messages with the Word of God, explaining these passages about the Messiah. The, the Jews would have understood, yeah, these are passages about a Messiah who would one day come. So that's the first part of Paul's message. That's the part that everybody would accept. That's the part that's okay. That's politically correct to share in their synagogue with his Jewish brothers and sisters and God-fearing Gentiles. But what Paul would do next, however is what got him into hot water. What did Paul do? Look at the text, verse 3. This Jesus that I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the one who was sent by God to come and save Israel, in fact, all people from their sins. He's the one who suffered He's the one who died on the cross for our sins. He's the one who was buried in the ground and rose again on the third day. All of these things Paul is sharing with the Thessalonian Jews. This is what he's proclaiming to them. He's sharing the gospel with them. Now, verse 4, the results of what Paul did are reported here by Luke, our author. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks as well as a number of leading women. So there's a few people groups mentioned here. After Paul shares the gospel over a series of three Sabbaths, three worship services, many Jews believed. A large number of God-fearing Greeks. So who are these people? We've talked about them before. These are non-Jews. These are Gentiles who believed in God, they believed in Yahweh, but they weren't Jews. They weren't ethnically Jews, and they probably didn't follow the Jewish law the way that the Jews did. But, but they feared God, and they were, they were searching after God. They wanted to know Him. Well, imagine 
their joy when they heard the gospel from Paul. That this Jesus, this this Jewish Messiah, this Savior, came not only for the Jews, but also came for the Gentiles. They could be a part of the family of God. And so I imagine that's why such a large number of them received the message. In addition to that, Luke points out that a number of important women, probably city leaders, also received the gospel and followed Jesus. In this first part of the text, Paul demonstrates an important evangelistic principle that we should use when we train and talk about Jesus with other people. The principle is this, the word is our weapon and source of truth. The word or the Bible is our weapon. This thing right here has been given to us by God to be a weapon for us to fight in a spiritual battle. Let me show you where the Bible says this. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, says this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Church, listen. When you walk in obedience in Christ, when you're fulfilling the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, when you go out from this place and you tell people about Jesus, you're walking into a spiritual battle. You should know that. When you open your mouth and speak the gospel, you've just located or placed yourself at the battlefront. Why? Because the enemy, Satan, does not want people to hear about Jesus. And he certainly doesn't want people to turn from sin and following him and this evil world system and to turn toward Christ to be saved and adopted into the family of God and to fight the spiritual battle against him, the enemy. And so when you leave this place, if if you're serious about fulfilling God's command to share the gospel, you should know that you are engaging in a spiritual battle. When we engage in the spiritual battle against spiritual forces, the Word of God is our weapon. We're fighting an unseen spiritual battle against forces that we cannot see. We can't touch them. We can't see them. But they're just as real as every one of you in this room. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our primary weapon in this battle is the Bible. It is the Word of God. How do we use this Word of God? We use the Word of God as our source of truth. The things we say when we share the gospel about Jesus during this unseen spiritual battle against evil spiritual forces should come from the Word as our source of truth. That's what sets our message apart from the perpetual 
onslaught of messages communicated in this world. If you were to turn on your phone right now and open up your notifications, anybody have like a like hundred of those things right now? I'm a clearer. I like everything to be clear. I like the bank of notifications clear. Anybody like me? Okay, all right. Cleanliness is good. Some of you have like a million of those things. Or do you have like 2,000 emails in your inbox? Any 2,000 email inbox people? Okay. How dare you? Are those unread? You know, there's a person that sent that to you. And you just leave it there floating around in the internet. If you get notifications, if you get emails, if you go on websites and read the news, you know that there's, there's an unending amount of information. There's an unending amount of opinions about how you should spend your money, how you should live your life, where you should shop, what kind of clothes you should buy, how you could be successful, powerful, how you can make more money, how you could be healthier, right? It never, ever ends. What sets us apart when we share the gospel is its foundation on the Word of God. That's why we take our sword, the Word of God, into the spiritual battle when we engage in gospel conversations. As our source of truth, which is the Word of God, as our source of truth, the Word has the power to change people from the inside out. That's the amazing thing. When we engage in a gospel conversation, sometimes we carry a heavy burden on our shoulders that it's up to us to change a person, right? It's not up to us. The Word of God, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, changes people. Your job is just to proclaim the good news. That should give us some reassurance, right? It's not up to you. Where do I get that? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God, the Bible, is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so when we engage in those biblical conversations, when we engage in, in a conversation with someone about Jesus and what He means to us, we take with us this Word of God. And maybe you just have one or two passages or principles from Scripture that you inject into that conversation. You know what God's promise is from Hebrews 4.12? When you say to a person and they hear with their ears that Word of God, it penetrates into their heart. It penetrates deeper than any man-made argument or conversation. It engages a person at a spiritual level and changes them from the inside out. The Word is our weapon. It's our sword in the spiritual battle. And it's our source of truth. And so we use it to tell people about Jesus. Now, sharing the gospel isn't easy, is it? If it was easy, everybody would do it. But unfortunately, most Christians don't ever tell anybody about Jesus. Why is it difficult? Because sharing the gospel takes us into a spiritual battle, and that brings a weight, that brings persecution and difficulty. 
And what I want to convince you to do today is to continue sharing the gospel, continue sharing the story about Jesus and how he changed your life in the midst of opposition. Let's see what Paul and his missionaries did in verse 5 of our text in Acts 17. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So Paul and Silas and Timothy share the gospel, and many people in Thessalonica receive Christ and are now following him. The Jews who sort of run that synagogue, they get jealous. Now they're jealous because all these people that were once following them and their teaching have now turned from that and they're excited about this Jesus, this Messiah whom they've rejected. And so the, the group really has, has kind of turned from, from them and, and followed along with the message that Paul shared. They're now Christians. And the Jews were jealous about this. Luke reports that these, these leaders didn't like what was going on. I think they probably realized, recognized that they can't hold water against Paul's biblical argument that Jesus is Savior. And so they look for a different route. Here's the plan. Let's go to town there's all these layabouts in the marketplace. These worthless men that should be working that aren't, that just kind of sit around and look for trouble. And so they go get them, and they get them all worked up. And these layabouts get in kind of a frenzy, and it says they go and they start this riot. So what they're doing is they're walking through Thessalonica, shouting at people, scaring people telling them about what Paul said, and probably most of what they said was untrue. And they get the town so worked up that the city officials have got to do something about it. And so the riot, the mob, is looking for Paul and Silas, the primary preachers in the synagogue in Thessalonica, and they can't find them. And so they go to Jason's house. There's this guy named Jason. He's a believer. And he's the one Paul and Th uh, Silas, Timothy, were staying with. They can't find them, so they find the next best thing, like this guy. Let's take him in and the other believers that are at his house. So they drag them in front of like five to six city officials who have uh, uh, an extensive amount of power in this city on two charges. Disruption of the civil peace, which... In a Roman town, nobody wants to be branded as a town, a riotous town, because if the, the upper levels of the Roman government find out that you got trouble, a civil disobedience in your town, you got real trouble, because then the Roman army's coming in, and they don't take prisoners. And so everybody works to kind of keep things peaceful. That's the first charge, disruption of the civil peace. The second charge is sedition claiming that Jesus is king, not Caesar. Now, this is the most serious charge. And Caesar did not react very well to anybody that claimed to be king in his place. 
Now, this is interesting. Because Paul did, in a sense, teach the Thessalonians in his letters that Jesus is the king. But it wasn't the same king as Caesar. At this point in history, Jesus is king, but he's a spiritual king. He won't be a physical king in their place, standing on a throne in their vision, in in the physical world until Jesus returns. And that's what Paul taught. So during this time when Jesus resurrected and ascended to be with the Father in heaven, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. But Paul did urge the people to turn from idols. And this would involve not worshiping Caesar, which is something that Caesar required. Paul described Jesus as the Son of God in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, and he also taught them about Jesus' kingdom in 1 Thessalonians 2.12. So the Jews who incited the mob probably heard what Paul was teaching, but didn't quite understand it. And so when they brought the believers in front of the council, they were right. Paul was teaching the people that Jesus is king, but not the kind of king that Caesar was. So they're all in front of the, the, the council. The charges have been laid down. Verse 8 continues. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset, right, because nobody wants trouble. After taking a security deposit, our, our bond from Jason and the others, they released them. So th- they must have recognized that they really don't have enough evidence here to hold them, to arrest them, to flog or beat them. So they make Jason lay down a monetary bond, and that's really a promise that they're not going to cause any trouble. And so they let him go. Very soon, Paul and Silas and, and the, believer are, the believers will send Paul and Silas away for their own safety. But when we look at this part of the text, we see something that's important that we need to know when we engage in sharing the gospel. One, we know that we, we share the gospel. When we share the gospel, we're engaged in a spiritual battle. And every time you go to a battle, a warrior needs a weapon, and the weapon is the Word of God. Number two, when we engage in the spiritual battle and engage in sharing the gospel, we will encounter opposition. We've got to continue sharing the gospel in the midst of opposition because God is working through your witness and your testimony. When I was living in Jacksonville, some friends of mine and I started a ministry at um, Jacksonville Jaguar football games. And we would go and set up like a stage and a tent outside the football stadium and speakers, and we would have a worship service. And I thought, you know, most of us in Jacksonville were mad that football was on Sundays because it would draw people away from church, and even our members would, would miss to go to a big game. And, you know, as a pastor, it was always like, ah, darn football, you know, it's, it's killing us here. And we thought, well, maybe we need to take the gospel there. And so we set up a worship service, and we invited people to come. So we had church normally at, at church in the building, and then we had church at the football stadium. And I would get up and share the gospel. Real brief, we would sing, and then I would share the gospel. And I remember in one gospel-sharing event over a period of about 10 minutes, I could see simultaneously a woman who had, who had come in and sat down and was visibly shaken by the message. She was weeping. 
She was broken. And, and just looked really, she was in really rough shape. And I, I remember just preaching and watching her and thinking, man, something is going on in that lady's life. Simultaneously, the same words that are spoken over these speakers draw this woman who later came to Christ that day, drew the heckling of a group of men who were tailgating about 100 feet over here. She's weeping at the, the hearing of the gospel, and they're yelling obscenities and shaking their fists. I mean, they were mad. Same, same time, simultaneous words. That's what the gospel does. What happened between them and her was not something that I could control. Right? That was the working of the Holy Spirit. That was wholesale rejection and determination to continue following the enemy, Satan, and reception due to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in her heart. The good news about Jesus confronts every person who hears it. Why? Because the Word of God penetrates into our hearts. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25 describes this process. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet, those to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. That is a window peering into the heart of every person who hears the gospel. That is why in one single proclamation or one single event, you could be sharing with two people, speak the same words, and one receives Christ with joy and the other rejects him with anger. We will see, finally, in this part of the text as, as I prepare to close here. The ones who God appoints to receive Christ will do it. Look at verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Okay, so Paul and Silas are sent away by the believers to Berea by night probably for their own safety. And as they always do, they go to the synagogue once they make it to Berea. These guys had some grit, you know what I mean? They were just looked for by this angry mob, 
In Philippi, they were beaten with rods, and they were jailed. Then they get to Thessalonica, and they share the gospel, and there's this like angry mob coming to get them to probably try and do the same thing. They leave in the dead of night for their own safety. They get to Berea, and what do they do? Like, okay, let's just let things settle down a little bit, right? I think I would have done the same, that, right? This is like too radical. We need to soften this message up a little bit. People are getting all worked up. Is that what they do? No, what do they do? Right back to the synagogue. Right back to sharing the gospel. These guys were tough as nails. Verse 11 continues with a good report. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a large including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. So the Berean Jews behave much differently than the Thessalonian Jews. First it says that they received the gospel message about Jesus. That means they accepted it. They pondered it. They, they heard what Paul had to say and they're like, wow, I need to think about this. Now, did they base what Paul said on circumstances and on their own opinions? No. What does it say they did? They look into the Word of God. They're examining the Old Testament Scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was accurate. They were zealous for the Word of God and eager to evaluate Paul's message. Unlike the Thessalonian Jews, the Bereans based their beliefs about Jesus on the Word of God and not on their own opinions. The Thessalonians were jealous and the Bereans were eager. The Thessalonians were full of rage and the Bereans were full of the word of God. It makes sense that the Thessalonians rejected the gospel and the Bereans received it. But the enemy Satan was not going to allow Paul to engage in this battle unchallenged. Look at verse 13. When the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea, they came there too. So it wasn't enough for them just to get Paul kicked out of, of, um, of their town. Now they had to go to Berea and make sure that they got him kicked out of that town as well. They were agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed on there in Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come, as him, as, come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. So the, 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 the Thessalonian Jews who were fighting against Paul in the sharing of the gospel, they go to Berea. They look for the layabouts, because every town has those, right? So they find them. They get them all worked up into another riot, and the believers are like, you guys need to, you guys need to get out of here. It's too dangerous. So Paul leaves to go on to Athens to preach an amazing sermon. And Silas and Timothy wait for a while, and then they ultimately catch up with him. If you were to just read this without knowing the whole story, even if we were just to read Paul's ministry after, you know, Acts chapter 12, when we start to focus and see what God's doing through Paul, it would kind of look like Satan's winning this war, Right? It was like every time Paul and the missionaries go to a city and share the gospel, they're beaten, they're arrested, they're run out of town. Everybody gets mad at them. 
I think I would probably be curled up in, in someone's house hiding. Anybody else? I'm the only, me and the kids, the only ones that are honest. Okay, good to know. We're going to do evangelism on Monday night. Everybody over here is going, I'm just kidding. And so it, it looks, if, if, if you didn't know the whole story, just reading a text like this, it might feel like, man, that God's just letting the enemy win, and, and they're getting run out of towns, and they can't stay there. They're beaten and, and, and jailed. It just sounds terrible. But we serve a God who redeems every circumstance for His glory. We serve a God who's sovereign over even the acts of the enemy. That's the God who we serve. As Paul goes from town to town sharing the gospel, yes, he might be run out of town, but what's been left behind? A testimony. A church. A seed. This is what it reminds me of. I need to cut my grass. In Key West, when you don't cut your grass for a period of time, this weed pops up that has uh, thistles on it and seed. They're, they're seeds, right? Do you guys, anybody have those in your yard? They hurt too when you step on them. And so when I go out with that plant or any other weed, I think I'm just going to run that thing over with my lawnmower and kill it, right? Does anybody else get pleasure from that like, like I do? I really like that. Chopping all those weeds down and then the grass is like that long. I, look what I accomplished. Just by walking behind this machine. What I don't know, or choose to forget, is when you hit that weed and all the seeds attached to the top of it, guess where they go? They just swing around. The lawnmower spits them out the side. And then I just essentially planted like a hundred more weeds over here. Right? Satan, and what he's trying to do to Paul and these missionaries is acting like a lawnmower. I'm going to go into that town. I'm going to get everybody worked up, and I'm going to end that gospel proclamation. And you know what he's doing every time he tries to end Paul's testimony? He's just spitting seeds out because Paul just leaves there, and he goes over to Berea, and he shares the gospel over here, and then he gets run out of town, and then he goes over to Athens, and he starts sharing the gospel there. Just like those seeds are sprayed by the lawnmower, God's using Paul and using what the enemy intended for evil for our good and for God's glory. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph one of the sons of Israel, he, he has a, a family reunion with his brothers. His brothers had sold him into slavery. And um, Joseph had been sold to slavery, he ended up in Egypt. Brothers thought he was dead or halfway around the world. And there was a great famine in the land. And, and so Joseph, because of God's grace and mercy, uh, God raises Joseph up to be the second most important person in Egypt. Then God gives him a vision to help him understand that there's going to be this famine. So Joseph leads the king to lay aside food for these years of famine. When the famine hits, Joseph's father sends some of the brothers down to get grain from, from Egypt. And Joseph is sending grain back. And finally, the brothers come. And finally, Joseph's ready to tell them who he is. And he tells them, 
I'm your brother. I'm the one that you sold into slavery and left for dead. His answer in Genesis 50 verse 20 is interesting. Most of us would probably have a fair amount of wrath to execute on our brothers, right? If your brothers and sisters sold you into slavery, how would you feel about that? I'd be pretty angry. And I surely wouldn't give him any grain. That's not what he did. He gave him grain. And then his answer about, about what happened as a result of him being sold into slavery is Genesis 50, verse 20. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. God used what the enemy intended for evil to bless his people through Joseph. God can take even the worst circumstances and use them for his glory and for our good. You know that? Romans 8.28 declares it. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. I don't know what kind of circumstance you're in today. I don't know who God's brought into your heart this morning that needs to hear the gospel. But know this. Sharing the gospel is a victory. Telling someone about Jesus is a win. Let God work out the results. Let God take that seed and spread it based on your obedience. Even when the enemy seeks to silence your witness and your testimony, just know that you keep sharing the gospel. You keep telling about people about Jesus. God will take every one of those circumstances and use them for his glory and for your good. Keep sharing the gospel and trust God with the results. There's really three things we can say in conclusion the what next for all of us. The first is this. Get in the game. Get in the game. Engage the enemy in battle by telling people about Jesus. Number two, you got to dress for battle. You start telling people about the Lord and about what He's done in your life, you will come up against the enemy. And it's a spiritual battle. Your intellect, your, your resources, your abilities, they won't, they won't be useful in this battle. You, you need to go with the tools and the weapons that God's given us, one of which is the Word of God. And then finally, trust in the Lord to work it out. Even if you get 99 no's, 99 people laugh in your face, give you a few explicatives that you weren't ready to hear, there will be the one. Just like at that event, when I was sharing the gospel before the football game, hundreds of people heard that message. Many of them mocked us. And then there was a woman right there in that chair, weeping, turned to Christ. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what God's doing in your heart or what he's telling you. But we're going to have a time of invitation. So in a second, I'm going to ask everyone to stand up. We're going to sing a song together. And it'll give you a chance to respond to what God's doing in your heart. Maybe, maybe today you need to turn from sin and trust in Jesus as Lord. Maybe today is your day of salvation. Come forward so I can sit and pray with you and talk with you about that. Maybe you need to join this church, become a part of our team, be used by God in the battle right here in Key West. 
Maybe you need prayer. Whatever it is, the, the altar will be open here. Would everyone stand with me? Heavenly Father, I pray over this time of invitation. I ask that you prepare our hearts to take a step of faith during this moment of decision. Whether it's someone who needs to be saved, I pray that you would lead them forward so they could hear the gospel again. Whether someone needs to be baptized, that they would come forward in obedience to you and your word, or someone who needs to join this church, or someone who just needs prayer for healing, a big decision, walking through difficulty, whatever it is, Lord God, we pray over this time that you would do a great work among us and help us to make those decisions in accordance with the leadership of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray.